Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, the capital asset pricing model. Uh, as usual, this will be a, uh, we'll have a quick overview of the markets before we get started on the main topic today. This is a math topic, but it's actually more, the, the math is easy. Uh, and quite honestly, it's, it's easy. The graphical part kind of might catch you a little bit. Uh, as far as, well, why does this graph look like this and all that, but we'll get through that. And uh, just so, to have a look at the market today, it is just uh, it's kind of like it's directionless. It's just bouncing around. You got the Dow down a little bit, less than a third, about a quarter of a percent. Then you got the S&P 500 is down about 0.15%, and then the NASDAQ, well, it's just barely up. But as you can see, it's just kind of been bouncing, although there does seem to be a bit of a trend in the Dow and the 500 uh, downward. It's not really anything spectacular. Right now, we're just kind of sitting on a, uh, waiting to see what's going to happen next. What's, which way is the Fed going to play its hand here? Is it going to inter raise interest rates? Well, there is talk that it might even get so butch that it's going to raise them by uh, 50 basis points. In other words, usually it's 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent they raise the discount rate. But they're talking like, well, we're going to put it, uh, raise the discount rate uh, half a percent. Well, that's scary. That's really heavy. But on the other hand, in the back rooms, you can see they're adding liquidity. Uh, so which way are they doing it? Uh, are they just putting on a show that they're going to keep fighting inflation? And on the other hand, they're trying to ease off because of what happened with a few banks buckling? Who knows? But crude has been on a pull upward. It's nothing major. It's still low comparatively speaking, to what it was a year ago. But it does seem to have had some play today upward. Let me go over here real quick. Grab the bonds. Bond prices are down. Bond yields are therefore up. So the market is of the mind that the Fed is going to move to raise interest rates. That's what it looks like here is that the market's reaction is that, yeah, the Fed's probably going to jack up the discount rate. It's not a dramatic move upward. It looks like it's, what, five basis points uh, of uh, the yield. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, the yield is down. I, I'm not reading that right. Jeez, Louie. Yeah, that's the yield's down, so the market seems to think like everyone else that the Fed's backing off. <coughs> Gold and silver really aren't doing too much. Well, actually, silver, I shouldn't say that. Silver's had kind of a spike today. Other than that, though. Now, euro versus dollar. Moving as I did before, the euro against the dollar, you see that 
We have had it moving upward. The U.S. dollar is strengthening against the euro, which seems to indicate that we're in a uh, the markets, the global markets, the currency markets, uh, export, import, and all that kind of stuff, seems to be of the mind that the U.S. dollar is going is going to get stronger, most likely because of higher interest rates here in the United States relative to those in Europe. Now, there are a couple of other reasons that interest uh, that uh, an exchange rate can uh, s the dollar can strengthen if uh, US incomes are going up relative to let's say European incomes that will tend to strengthen the dollar uh, but at the same time another one is inflation if inflation in uh, the United States is higher than expected inflation in Europe, then that would tend to erode, ultimately erode the value of the dollar. So whichever one you want to bet on, looking real quick here, it actually, it's real, oh, look at that. It did uh, make it above, <coughs> uh, uh, one euro is one dollar and eight cents. So it did break kind of a psychological line there and then it backed down but it's pulling back up again it's trying to find that 108 uh, level if I were uh, if I were betting which I actually am in this and God don't do it don't don't play these markets unless you're really willing to lose your shirt I am actually taking a derivatives position that by the end of April the Euro, the uh, exchange rate is going to be one euro is a dollar ten. In other words, I'm betting that the dollar is going to continue to strengthen against the yen or uh, against the euro. On the other hand, though, looking what else? Oh, great. Okay, uh, let me pull over here real quick just to give you another one. The pound sterling, as you can see, the uh, dollar has was getting stronger early in the day and then it backed down and now it's bouncing back up again. So again, US dollar strengthening against other currencies. Uh, now the yen works backwards. Going up is going down. And I finally figured out all these years and it just never occurred to me why they do the other ones as indirect quotes. In other words, the foreign currency is one and the U.S. dollar is the many against it. Why do they do the yen the opposite way? Well, because yen are so inherently cheap compared to dollars. So they have to do it backwards. Otherwise, they have these tiny decimals here. So in this case, the yen, <coughs> as you can see, the dollar was depreciating against the yen. God, that's confusing. Even though I teach this, this confuses me sometimes. And now it's appreciating and then it's bouncing around. But in general, the yen actually... No, that would be... The dollar is appreciating. That's... God, I'm not going to do yen for any kind of quiz or anything like that. Forget that. That's just ridiculous. But anyway, going over here real quick. Um, what the hell? Do I have a problem with hearing voices? 
God. Mm. Good Lord, I hate those places that have these pop-ups that hide and then... Anyway, uh, where the hell was I after? Uh, oh, well, just real quick. Bitcoin. The dollar was appreciating against Bitcoin, and then it's dropped off again. The dollar is depreciating against Bitcoin. In other words, Bitcoin was losing value to the dollar, and now later in the trading day, it's gaining value to the dollar. But that's a, a whole other world. It's, even, it's hard to even apply classical theory to these uh, cryptocurrencies. Yeah. So for like the pounds for the US dollar? Yeah. So that's saying, is that saying, uh, with the euro too, like, is that saying that? Okay, in this case, that would say that one pound can be bought for a dollar twenty-two point five one. Okay, and that is, in other words, it was lower than that early in the day. So a pound could buy a dollar for less. Now, as it takes more dollars to buy a pound, that's the dollar appreciating against the pound. If you don't think too much about it, you're okay. But if you start thinking about it too much, I, 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 and the same here with the euro. The euro was lower. Uh, well, let me show, show you the chart, just so you can get the hang of this. Let's look at the euro. Started out, I could buy one euro for a dollar seven point six eight or something like that. 0.64. And then as the day wore on, at this point, it took a dollar eight to buy a euro. You see how the dollar's appreciating, strengthening against it. And whenever you use the foreign currency as the one, that's called a direct quote. As opposed to if you make the dollar the one, that's called an indirect quote. So we try to hold direct quotes. I'll show you another site here, and I'll have to, I really, I bookmarked it in one class, and then it went away, but let me, let me find it again. Um, exchange rates. Uh, now, this, if I set the dollar as the one, that's an indirect quote. We usually want the foreign currency as the one for a direct quote. That way when thing, this one goes up and down, that is appreciating and depreciating instead of the opposite. If you want to get into this world, which some of you probably will end up in this world, this is OANDA. Now OANDA is a sort of like the go-to site for a lot of us. Notice that they immediately start with direct quotes. The foreign currency is the one against the US dollar, which is the many against it. So I can see that the euro, one euro right now costs $1.7.474. I could go to another one here. Let's try a uh, pound sterling. I can buy one pound sterling for $1.22.354. See how it was, it has been climbing. The dollar has been appreciating overall against the pound since early in the month. And it's getting stronger. Uh, just, for, just for fun. See, look, here's a direct quote on the yen. 
You see why they do it the opposite on Yahoo? Because the yen are such a tiny number and that you want to do it the other way, so it's like in the hundreds. But as you can see, the dollar is appreciating against the yen overall over, over the past 30 days. Now here's one that is always fun to watch. The... Uh, The Russian ruble. Oops. You can buy a ruble for 1.295 cents. But notice something interesting. Do you see how the ruble, uh, the dollar has been depreciating against the ruble? Well, isn't that strange? Haven't we got all those sanctions? We're destroying Russia. You know, we're making everything, uh, everything in Russia, their lives like hell by depreciating, making their economy collapse. But why is the ruble, why is this happening? Well, that would be because the sanctions aren't working. Russia, as its currency depreciated early on, that made its exports cheap as hell. And of course, our friends in China just bought them up, repackaged them, and sold them to the world and moved that money back into Russia. Why do you think they still have all of that firepower to wipe out Ukraine? Because the sanctions aren't working, because they can go through a friendly country and get their stuff out into the world markets, just like always. So after an initial, it just is so there it's not going to really work we have to do it another way and unfortunately uh the other way is probably to uh turn this country into a parking lot which we don't want to do and i certainly don't want you going over there don't want to have to go over and rescue you or anything like that but anyway enough of that let me uh talk to you about risk here for a little bit Uh, the problem with risk, as I've said before, is that risk is actually, in, it, in and of itself, a diffuse measure. We talk about risk in terms of how many different outcomes there can be. Well, that helps us a little bit. We can draw a normal curve and sort of have a look at how wide the normal curve is. That would mean that we are looking at the variance so a normal curve that has a tight distribution around its central tendency, this would be the mean, the average, and then you would have how much variation in outcomes there are. As you can see in this one, they have the same central tendency, the same average, but there are a lot of high probability outcomes far from that average on both sides. And so that's one of our problems is that we have to have that measure of which usually we do sigma, the standard deviation. Now, standard deviation, interestingly enough, is useful in and of itself, and I'll talk about that in a, a minute. But we want to be a little tighter. But risk has different aspects to it. One of the aspects, well, what causes risk? What, ca what is the underlying driving factors? Well, one part of it is, well, risk is like uncertainty. And lack, one of the ways that we can have uncertainty is through lack of knowledge. 
lack of information creates uncertainty. It, without all the knowledge that could possibly be gathered, we make decisions that could create unfortunate outcomes. Um, <coughs> good example. You're a young person, right? When you get to be about my age, 85, no, uh, you will have a lot more knowledge about how things work. One of the things that we notice is that young people tend to have more accidents than older people do. Why is that? Is it because young people are stupid? Not exactly. It's because they don't have as many experiences in driving, traffic, as someone who has been driving for many more years. And so actuarially, it makes sense. You're going to have more accidents because there is less knowledge of what can happen uh, in certain situations. Uh, lack of knowledge also. Uh, let me show you something here. Okay. Uh, I need someone to do something for me here. Okay, you sir. Okay. Stand up. You see this? Yes. Okay. I want you to stand and fire. Okay. See that? This tight pattern of possible outcomes. Now, aim at the same place and fire. Not at my face, God! Oh, no. <laughs> oh yeah, buddy. <laughs> okay. Go. Give that to me. <laughs> oh, God, did I get this water out of Ass Lake? God. <laughs> Look, you see the point there. Think about time. As time extends, in this case, distance would be the dimension, but time is just another dimension, you have more possible outcomes. That is reflected in the maturity premium, in that, that risk premium I showed you before. As time expands, there are more things that could happen. You, madam, will probably not die today. But if we put your life expectancy, look at the next 30 years, there's a higher chance that you will die. Now, there's a little chance you'll die today. You'll walk out of here and a train will come by, ding, 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 or an asteroid. But there is not nearly as much of a probability of. But over a longer period of time, you have more possible outcomes. And therefore, as, the, as my informal definition of risk told you, there is greater risk because there, is more, there are more possible outcomes on a longer time scale. And that plays out a lot in finance. I mean, if you're going to buy stocks and then dump them the next day, well, that's a very low risk position, but you're not going to expect a high return from that. But if you hold on long enough then more possible outcomes could happen. Uh, so you have to think in terms of how far do I want to extend this? I could go down a lot with the stock, but I could also go up a lot with the stock over a longer period of time. <coughs> There's another one that comes into play. Madam, what is this? 
Chicken? Not just a chicken, it's a miniature chicken. It's a tiny chicken. Look at all these chickens. Now suddenly, you two are attacked by chickens. Bark, 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 bark. Were you hurt? No. Well, emotionally, yes, I was. No. <laughs> you were not hurt by some of the chickens. Their beards came off, so mind those. <laughs> but not much. There's a high frequency, but a low severity. Severity. Now, suppose instead that instead of a bunch of miniature chickens, you are attacked not just by a giant dragon, but by a fire-breathing dragon that comes at you. Uh, uh, oh! oh. What's, wait. Damn it. You know. Uh, uh, did you understand? Yeah. You know, have you seen a fire-breathing dragon before now? No. Well, I mean, the Game of Thrones, but, you know, that's for you, uh, you know, if you want porn. But, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, baby. Okay, listen. <laughs> you see, the frequency is low, but the severity is high. That is something that you have to consider, is that in a risk situation, how often would this risk occur? How bad is it if it does occur? Classic examples of that are in earthquake insurance. Here in this part of the country, and I told you about this earlier in the semester, but we have a fault line not far from where we are right now it hardly ever unleashes. Last one was several hundred years ago. But when it did, my God, it was just ungodly what it did to the cities along the Mississippi River. It tore them to the ground, and it just kept going for six weeks. Major earthquakes just kept rolling. It was so bad that it actually threw the water of the Mississippi back up north, and then it came down it back down as a tidal wave, wiped out the farmlands all along the Mississippi, and killed a lot of people. But it doesn't happen very often. <coughs> and therefore, you know, why would we worry about it? Well, we also have the stories from early explorers who had spoken with the Native Americans of the area, and they had described an oral tradition of this having happened before, again, hundreds of years before the last one. And so, here we go. Low frequency, extraordinarily high severity. Uh, it really bugs me that almost none of you here in this class were alive when we were attacked on September 11, 2001. The two towers that were standing, the insurance, earthquake insurance on those was extraordinarily low. 
how likely is it that those towers are going to be knocked down by an attack? Not likely at all. And how if one of, if if there were some kind of a god awful t- catastrophe, one might come down, but what would be the likelihood that both would come down? Even extraordinarily less likely. So, therefore, guess what? When they were attacked, the insurance originally said, no, nah, we insured one of those. We're not insuring, we didn't insure, you said we'll insure one. And there was a court fight, and ultimately, I believe they convinced uh, the, the courts or the insurance company that the two towers were actually connected underground, so it was one tower. But nevertheless, the same thing. And I, of course, have told you, I, you know, I'm driving along a road one night, I picked up some young man, and he was very grateful. He said, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't get anyone to pick me up because, you know, I mean, I might be a serial killer. So thank you. And I said, no, I'm not worried about that. What's the likelihood that there are two serial killers in the same car? <laughs> he has to get out at the next stop. I didn't let him out. A little twerp. Uh, anyway. So you, you understand the context of this. Let me show you something here. An underlying part of what I'm going to show you comes from the world of engineering. It comes, well, engineering, physics, chemistry. This is actually a principle of the universe. And it... I think there was kind of a, an, an understanding that this, this was uh, in stocks, in stock returns. But it wasn't fully fleshed out until we started doing data analysis some many years ago. And here's, here's how it worked. On this axis, on the horizontal axis, return to the portfolio. And you can find pictures of this online. Google what I'm going to tell you, the term for this. You can, so many dissertations and master's theses were written about this. And this is, um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, I, I think I'm going to do it the other way. Uh, I guess I can do it this way. I, I, no, I am going to do it the other way. It'll make more sense. I found out that students really hate it when I do it that way. Return to the portfolio. And I'll do it over here, total risk. It's not good because some of the other graphs have it the opposite way, but it'll make more sense this way. Now, suppose that I was looking for stocks and I form a portfolio of one stock. Well, here's its risk. And here's its total return. Oh, and here's its risk and total return risk and total return for another portfolio. A couple of stocks make up a whole bunch of portfolios, analyze what would happen with them. 
and keep plotting these risk returns on all these different portfolios. One stock, three stocks, five stocks, 30 stocks, 100 stocks. And something weird begins to happen. No matter how many data points you plot, there's a place where you can't find any portfolios. I mean, you can find portfolios all over the place, except above a certain place. Now, in physics, in engineering and physics, we refer to this phenomenon as an envelope. There's a place where this doesn't happen anymore. We see this all through the world. Every person has an envelope. For example, you decide, sir, that you are going to start working out, lifting, you know, every morning you get up and you still play the Rocky music, blah, 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 blah. And you do your lifting and all that. But there's a place, a weight, and you can never get past that. No matter how many times you try, no matter how many hernias you get, you decide, sir, that you're going to start running faster and faster and faster. But there's a wall. You can't get past it. As a matter of fact, you notice that there is a wall for the human species. No human can get past about three mi- uh, a mile in three minutes and what is it now, 50 seconds. It can't happen. With a car, no matter how much you tune that car of yours up, you can't get it past a certain speed. You just can't do it. That's the envelope. We see this in nature all of the time. For an example, in astronomy, we see stars of all kinds of sizes, yellow dwarfs like our sun, enormous, god-awful, supergiant stars, but there is a size we would ne- we'll never see. We just don't see it happen. With a chemical reaction, let's say it's an exothermic chemical reaction, no matter how purified the chemicals going in are, there is a certain level of exothermic calories that we cannot get past. That, those are examples of envelopes, and we see it with stock portfolios too. No matter how hard we try to find portfolios that are as good as you can get, diversified to the world portfolio, We cannot get past this boundary. As a matter of fact, we can't even hit the boundary. We don't find any that actually sit on the boundary. So what would that boundary be like? Well, we know that that boundary is world market portfolios. That's what it is. We can't create world market portfolios. They're only theoretical. But we know that if we did, that, that, those are what that envelope looks like. We have a name for this thing. We call it the efficient frontier of investments. The efficient frontier of investments. And it, like I said earlier, you could type in efficient frontier of investments. 
and click on Google and images, uh, uh, click on images in Google, and you would see just all kinds of these that have been actually calculated different portfolios over the years. It just, that's, we know it's there. We can't find a portfolio that is better than this efficient frontier. That's why in a, one of the first ways that we who are professionals in this business laugh at the idea, well, th this fund manager, he beat the market. Isn't he a great son of a bitch? My God. No, he didn't. No, unless he has done something and that would prove that he is awesome, like going to the other side of the efficient frontier. Well, we, we can look at his portfolio. No, you were inside of it. You were close to the edge of it. But the reason you made such high returns was because you took so much risk. You were way out there. And that doesn't impress us at all. And you'll see why in a minute. I don't give a rat's ass if you brag to me about how great your returns are. You still, you bore, you were taking extraordinary risk to get that high expected return. And you could very easily have gone the other way too. There's no way around the physics of it. It's sort of like the idea of um, breaking the speed of light. We cannot cross the speed of light. We cannot even get to it. It is part of an envelope of performance on the space-time continuum. There are ways that we can sneak around it. We know the math of it now. And the same thing is true with um, some other things. Teleportation should not happen. You cannot move faster than a certain degree in space-time. Well, we know, how, we know how to fold space-time now. It's just an engineering monster. But anyway, let me get to this here real quick. Um, one thing that I do want to point out, though, is that these are world market portfolios. We can't get to them. We can get close, and if you take one of my later courses, I'll show you ways that you can get really close to it. One of my favorite ways is you find some portfolios that are very close to the frontier, like the S&P 500, that ETF, the NASDAQ. These are highly diversified world portfolios at different risk levels along the, close to the edge of it. And one of the tricks that we can do is you create a super portfolio that has each of these really good portfolios in it. And if each of those, if those three portfolios, let's say the Dow down here, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ up here, they're not going to be on the frontier. But if you combine those into a single super portfolio, the resulting portfolio gets darn close to the boundary. It's almost like a pure world portfolio. It's not pure, but it's darn good. And so that's one way that we can get really, really close to the boundary <coughs> of a world portfolio. However, I didn't bring up the uh, jumps in space-time beating the speed of light for no reason. There's actually a way that we can jump the boundary. There's actually a way that we can jump the frontier, at least kind of. Let me draw this to you. Okay, return on this axis and risk on this axis. And here's the efficient frontier. 
You can't get to this side of it. Except you can. There, we already we know very well a point that's not on the front uh, that's not in the frontier. It's not on the frontier. We know a point. It's a portfolio of risk-free treasury bills. That would have a return of R sub F about risk-free rate. Well, that's not, you can do that. You can just buy a bunch of uh, treasury bills and you are off the whole scenario of the envelope. Okay, well, that kind of sucks because I don't want to earn that lousy low return. Oh, but suppose that I could get right on the world portfolio. This line that I'm drawing right here would be combinations of the world portfolio and treasury bills. Here you have about half treasury bills, half market portfolio. Over here, you would actually be borrowing money at a very low interest rate to buy more of the world portfolio. In any of these cases here though, you are not held to the frontier. You're not tied inside the frontier. And that is where the modern capital asset pricing model comes in. The world portfolio is perfectly diversified. Well, let's think about a measure. A measure that would give us anchors. Like for example, a portfolio of risk-free treasuries or something like that, risk-free stuff. We would want that to have this measure to be zero for that. And the market portfolio, let's give that a measure of 1.0 on our rule. So in other words, we would have a measure so that <coughs> a, the 0, 0.0 would be the risk-free rate. This is expected return. It would have, it would earn you the risk-free rate and we would assign it a value of zero. Zero risk. And just for scaling, let's say that that world portfolio there, we would give that a measure of 1.00. And that would earn the expected return to the market portfolio, to the world market. So that then any portfolio could be connected someplace on this line right here. Any efficient portfolio, I should say. Well, in fact, that's what we call beta. Beta. And that's why I keep bitching about it. Beta is the measure of a risk of a portfolio or a stock. But in any case, it would have to be an efficient portfolio. So in other words, saying, well, the stock has a beta of 0.8. That means, that means only that if it is in an efficient portfolio, it would have 
that risk level of 0.8. Now we have actually an equation that does this. By the way, let me, let me make a point here. This thing is called the securities market line. The securities market line. The securities market line plots beta against expected return. That's what it does. Oh, I should point this out. And this always confuses even the brightest of us. Remember that line, original line that I did there, that tangent line? For some reason, they call that the capital market line. Don't get it confused. The capital and the securities market line, don't get them confused. There's a reason why it's easy to confuse them. This line right here is called, is the equation for it is called the capital asset pricing model. The capital asset pricing model. <coughs> it's just high school algebra. You have two points you know on this line. You have the point zero, point zero, if it's we plot beta against expected return. You have zero comma zero, and you have the risk-free rate, and this point right here would be one beta comma expected return to the market portfolio. And like I said, this is high school algebra and I'm not gonna kill you with it. Here's the capital asset pricing model. The expected return to a stock or to a portfolio in a, efficiently, <coughs> is going to be the risk-free rate plus the beta of the stock times expected return to the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate. That's the capital asset pricing model, CAPM. You wouldn't go wrong if you got your first tattoo with that. Along, you know, the rib cage, you know. And all you need, and, and don't make this look complicated. If I give, okay, first of all, the risk-free rate. Well, where would we get that number? Let's say, let me do this. Oh, I should point something out. You see this little piece right here, the expected return to the market portfolio minus risk-free rate. We call that the market premium over risk-free. Market premium over risk-free. In other words, this is how much extra you make by taking market risk instead of no risk. It's a premium. It's what you get for going to college instead of quitting and going getting a job in high school. It's what you get for taking risk instead of just buying T-bills. And I, I, I try my best to get you not to take this as something complicated. Look, suppose I wrote, what is 
the expected return to a stock in a well-diversified portfolio with a beta of 1.25. I'll do this on your next quiz and on the final. It's actually a no-brainer if you know where to put numbers. Okay. Oh, mother's work is never done. We've got the expected return to the stock, which is what we don't know. Now, the two other pieces, we're going to need the beta of the stock, which we said was 1.25. Now, here are the two we look up. What's the risk-free rate and what's the expected return to the market? Let me show you. Now, we don't, remember I said we don't see the risk-free rate directly, but we can estimate it by the proxy of treasury bills. Okay. Uh, go here to interest rates. The best the one that is always classical to use is a one-year T-bill. The one-year T-bill. <coughs> it's right now, the rate on it is 4.68%. Unless someone's got a better estimate of the risk-free rate, we just say, okay, fine, 4.68%. Well, this one, what's the expected return to the market portfolio? That one's a little dodgy. <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost your guess is as good as mine. But what we usually do for the expected return to the market portfolio, we take a consensus of finance and economics professionals out in industry and academia and uh, there are a lot of these services. They, ha they maybe take a poll of 10, 50, 100 leading thinkers and uh, professionals and say, what do you see it as right now? I'm in one of those services. And uh, wherever you want to call it, it's going to, usually these services are right about in the same area. The one I'm in, the last um, average that they got, I think there's 70 people in it. And the overall average was 10.50% for what the expected annualized return to the market is going to be to the world portfolio over the next year. And if you look at other services, all of them were right in that same area. Yeah, I mean, you get some that were a little higher, some are a little lower. But the consensus, you get that many people who are living their lives doing this. And it looks like about 10.50%. We'll give that one. And you can look these up uh, 
even Google, you got to be a little careful with Google. If you go into Standard Poor's Global Net Advantage, they've got some really reputable people who do the estimates there, which is why I don't participate in that one. They never asked me. But anyway, okay, fine. The expected return to this stock is going to be the risk-free rate, 4.68%. And for this one, you can just use the percentages. Plus the beta which was, what did I say, 1.25 times the expected return to the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate, 4.68. Let me read this off to you, percent. The expected return to this stock, as a matter of fact, let me write it bigger here, just so everyone in the back can see it. The expected return to this stock is going to be uh, the risk-free rate, 4.68% plus the beta of 1.25 times 10.50% minus the 4.68%. That's all you do. And then you've got the expected return to the stock. Yeah. Like I said, this is a consensus of, the, there are different services that give estimates of it. The consensus, uh, the last one, uh, thinking about, I think I've seen maybe about six, and they, six different uh, estimates, and they were all around 10.50% going into the uh, annualized over the next year for the return to, expected return to the market. <coughs> now, there's something I want to show you here. And this is all there really is to it. This is it. Uh, but let me show you something here. Let me get a calculator. I'm going to do something, an intermediate calculation here really quickly. Um, I'm going to take that 10.5% minus the 4.68%. There is the market premium over risk-free, that 5.82 right there. That is the expected, the market premium over risk-free. Now, you don't have to do that. You can run it on a calculator with parentheses, and you don't have to do that. But I want to point something else out about that. Do you see how beta is times that market premium? In other words, beta is nothing but a magnifier. It either magnifies or demagnifies the market premium. In this case, Beta is saying that this stock is going to, if we expect it, to earn 125% of what the market premium over risk-free would earn you. That's all it does. So in other words, betas above one magnify the market premium. Betas below one demagnify the market premium.
That's all beta really is. It is a magnification factor. So in other words, when I go over here to Yahoo Finance and I put up, pull up a stock, well, I saw GameStop today went absolutely cuckoo bananas. GameStop today, well, it doesn't even have a beta. The hell with that. Let's try something that has a beta. Um, 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 uh, let, let's do General Motors. Yeah, General Motors. There you go. What that beta is saying is that as far as expected return goes, GM will magnify market movements 137%. Oh, will be 137% of the market's movement. That's all it says. So that's why I was saying the betas above one are riskier than the market. Betas below one are less risky than the market. That's what I mean by that. Beta is... That, that's our measure of risk. But remember that that's the risk of that security in a well-diversified portfolio. On its own, that, that animal might be insane, might be crazy. Unless you're talking about a portfolio. Now, portfolios can have betas too. Uh, two stocks, you own two stocks? The beta is the weighted average of the two stocks in your portfolio. But whatever it is, it's telling you the magnification or demagnification of the expected return relative to the market. That's all it's doing right there. Now, that one there on the end, that 4.68, that's the y-intercept. See it on the securities market line? In other words, that's your base return. If you can't make the risk-free rate, then your portfolio really, really sucks. But that's all this is doing is, and on an exam or a quiz, I mean, it's not any more than just plugging in the numbers and answering the question. There are a couple of other little tiny pieces to this, uh, just to bring them up. <coughs> Going back to that idea of the fund manager who makes a you know, an, an enormous amount, his return was higher than anyone else's. Or we have contests, collegiate contests all the time in universities and colleges where the team that got the highest return on their portfolio is the winner and I just have a shit fit at them. Of course you can get insanely high returns. All you have to do is get a hell of a lot of risk. That doesn't impress me at all. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I got the, to uh, Chicago in an hour, and you drove like a blind trout to do it, fool. And so it doesn't mean anything when you get a high expected, you, you get a high return. Well, that means that you just took a hell of a lot of risk, and that might not be something that you want to do, especially if you're a portfolio manager. You're supposed to be watching over your clients' investments, prudent management. If you've got a bunch of old people, well, I sure made you a return last year, you dumbass. God, no. You took a huge amount of risk on their money to do that. So, but there is something interesting. I, let me draw you a cap M line here. Let me draw you a cap M line here. 
And I'll show you something that we do watch out for. And again, we've got beta on the horizontal axis, and we've got the expected return. Now remember, this is the expected return. We have the risk-free rate anchoring beta at zero, and we have the expected return to the market portfolio anchoring with a beta of 0.11 up here. That would be the expected return to the market. That was 10, the 10.5% in that last one I did. And you get your securities market line. There it is. It's, really, it's just a straight line, linear algebra from high school. Nothing big there. Here's the thing, though. We do a lot of studies on portfolio performance, and they line up pretty much along this line, based upon the beta of the portfolio. They, they hang pretty closely to the line. Once in a while, though, we see something like a portfolio that had, let's say, a beta of 1.5, and it was below the securities market line. And we might also say, here we have a beta maybe 1.25, and it's a little above. Now, for the most part, this doesn't last too long, because if everyone sees someone outperforming the, cap, uh, cap, the securities market line, everyone's going to start buying that, uh, that fool stock drive prices up and wash away. But we do like to talk about this. See that distance right there from a portfolio's actual performance to what it should have had based upon the cap M? We call that alpha or Jensen's alpha. It can be positive or negative. And it's usually a really small number. But sometimes it's kind of noticeable. Someone, whoever this was who had this portfolio, that son of a bitch did outperform the market. Probably only temporarily, but still, we kind of keep an eye on this, kind of this thing. As a matter of fact, one of the most reputable sites you can go to for stock help in investing of all kinds is called Seeking Alpha. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it, but it's it, it kind of like, here's, here's a way that you might find some nice uh, positive alpha for a while. Uh, uh, does this last? Usually not, like I said. And here's another thing about it too is if you are going with one of these services that free stock trades with us, put your money with us and you can trade like a, uh, like a pro and we won't charge you commissions. Well, guess what? They're seeking alphas. They are out there looking. They're more than happy to find out who actually has the magic, who can actually do this trick. And so behind the scenes, if they start seeing that you have a consistently positive alpha, well, they're going to start grinding it out. They're going to do all these things that are supposed to be illegal. They're going to do front running. Oh, this son of a bitch right here, he's got an alpha of 0.40. So whenever he puts in a trade, 
we're going to put in a trade like his before his is executed. So that that's going to, as their trade goes in, that'll push the price up and you'll lose your alpha. And they do this all the time. Yes? Again, just want to be precise. Alpha is the difference between the actual portfolio's return and what the cap M says it should be. The cap M says it should be. So in other words, I, I, I erased that. What did I find that? What did I find that? I didn't, I, I didn't even ever finish that, did I? Times 1.25. Good God. Uh, and then plus the risk-free rate, 4.68 equals. So in other words, that stock has an expected return of 11.96%. Well, what if you made a return that was 12%? Then you'd have an alpha of positive 0.04. This really doesn't apply to a single stock, but to a portfolio. But if you had a return of 11.90, then you'd have an alpha of negative 0.06, because your actual return would be lower than CAPM says it should be. And so alpha, so you are, we are all seeking alpha, but what we're seeking is a positive alpha, not a negative alpha, certainly. This idea, one last point to make about using these online services, is that yes, they do this. Of course they do this. They are looking for those magicians. And honestly, I've seen them. I've seen people who can, be, uh, who can get positive alphas over and over again. They're the same kind of people I see once in a while back in the day when I was in casinos. No matter how much I was losing, there was always this one son of a bitch who was making money off every table that he was playing. It's just something out there. It's not common. It's very rare. But yeah, Cap M is for all of us. If you think you've got what it takes to, find, to uh, create portfolios with positive alphas, Go for it. You'll find out over a long period of time. Sometimes you have a positive alpha, sometimes you have a negative alpha, and it all washes out in the end. But that is the capital asset pricing model right there in a nutshell. And that's all I have for you today. I thank you.